Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make sure you're aware of a few things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks at Hope Church LV, and also be sure to check out our website at hopechurchonline.com. There, you can find out more information about who we are and where we're going as a church. Once again, thank you so much for checking out this sermon at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. In John 17, we are invited into what is arguably the most holy and intimate conversation ever recorded in human history. If you know the context of John 17, it's a critical moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. He is on the eve of his crucifixion. He's now in a garden alone. He went into that garden with his disciples, and then he left the majority of his disciples. He took three of his closest disciples into the inner sanctuary of that garden, and now he's even left them. And he said, hey, I need you to pray. And he's walked away from those disciples, and we find Jesus now having dropped to his knees, literally the weight of the world pressing in on him. The emotion of this moment is real. The scripture tells us the emotion is so real that he literally began to sweat drops of blood in agony as he is pouring out his heart before the Father. He opens the prayer in verse 1 with this phrase, Father, the hour has come. Never has a truer statement been uttered, the hour, the hour that all of human history is about to hang upon. When Jesus is going to be crucified for the sins of the world, he's going to be buried, and then he's going to rise again, defeating death, hell, and the grave. That hour of human history has come. And Jesus has a conversation with the Father. And as you skip down through that prayer, you get down to verse 11. And listen to something Jesus cries out in the middle of this prayer. He says, I am no longer in the world, yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. In the name which you have given me. And then this next phrase is astonishing. That they may be one. Even as we are. Wow. The world had never experienced a unity, a oneness, like is being described here as Jesus is crying out to the Father. Father, may they, talking about his disciples, may their oneness, may their unity, may they be one even as we are 
one. But then as you read on through the prayer, he's not just praying for those disciples that are with him in the garden. Look at verse 20. Look what it says. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. You know who that is? That's us. Here's Jesus on the moment before his crucifixion, his death, his burial, his resurrection. The weight of the world is crashing in on him. And what's on his heart is you and me. Father, I'm not just asking you this on behalf of these disciples, but on behalf of everyone who will come to know me through the preaching of their word. God, I'm asking for them. What's he asking? Look what he says. That they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Then he says this. So that the world may believe that you sent me. I'm not going to preach out of John 17 this morning, but man, I'm tempted to. I want to. (laughs) There's so much in this prayer of Jesus. There's so much that he's pouring out of his heart. We see here a a level of oneness and unity. He equates the unity that he desires in the fellowship of his family with the unity that has existed for eternity between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. What a bar of unity. What a call. What an expectation. But then he says, hey, the kind of unity that I'm praying for in this fellowship He said, it's the unity that exists among you that authenticates the mission that I came into this world to accomplish. He said, the way the world's going to know that this is real, the way the world's going to know that I came is they're going to look at my disciples and they're going to see this oneness and this unity and they're going to say, only God could have done that. On the heart of Jesus in John 17 is what had been on the heart of the Father since before time began. A people redeemed to himself out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation enjoying a right relationship with God. And because of their relationship with God, they're also now enjoying a right relationship with each other. There's a oneness, a unity that exists John Perkins, the great civil rights leader, decorated leader of that movement, but beyond that, a dear brother in the Lord Jesus Christ, a devoted follower of Christ and pastor. John Perkins, who I've had the privilege of meeting on a couple of occasions, listen to what he said about this unity in his book called One Blood. He said, for too long, many in the church have argued that unity in the body of Christ across ethnic and class lines is a separate issue from the gospel. There has been the suggestion that we can be reconciled with God without being reconciled to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Scripture doesn't bear that out. 
We only need to examine what happened when the church was birthed to see exactly how God intends for this issue of reconciliation within the body of Christ to fall out. My, my, my brother John Perkins is saying, hey, look when the church was born in Acts chapter 2. When the church began in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, on the first day the gospel is proclaimed, people come to Christ representing 15 different geographical locations and over a dozen different languages. That's why God gave those early apostles the gift of tongues to preach the gospel and people could hear it in multiple languages. Why? Because God has always had on his heart redeeming a people to himself from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and birthing them together in one family. But I would go back even beyond what my brother John Perkins says. Go back past Acts chapter 2. Go to John 17. On the heart of Jesus as he's about to bear the sin of the world. He says, Father, may they be one. This issue of unity in the body of Christ is rooted in gospel centrality. We live in a very divided world. I know possibly many generations would say what I'm about to say, but I think, at least in my lifetime, we're living in some of the most divided and divisive days that I have ever experienced personally. And I don't just mean in our nation. I mean, when you look at the globe, when you look around the world, there is a divide today, which is an interesting sociological research project because we're supposed to be more connected than ever before because of social media. And yet in the era of connection, we seem to be more divided than we've ever been. We're divided geographically, we're divided geopolitically, we're divided culturally, racially, economically, socially. We're divided along political party lines. But here's what we understand from Jesus. Jesus is on a mission to unite a people to himself out of the midst of this divided world and make them one family, brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, don't miss this. Unity does not mean uniformity. We've all been created in the image of God. We all have our uniquenesses and our differences. And it's the diversity within the unity of the body of Christ that makes this such a beautiful tapestry. But unity does come from conformity. And by that, I mean conformity to the image of Jesus. We've been made in the image of God, but now we're being conformed as brothers and sisters in Christ into the image of Jesus, meaning this, within the complexity of our diversity, there is a unity in our conformity to the image of Jesus so that we all begin to have a family resemblance. We all begin to look like him. That is exactly what Paul is writing about in the book of Ephesians. If you got your Bible, open it to Ephesians chapter 4. If you're visiting with us, we're walking straight through this letter to the church in Ephesus in the first century. Right now, we're in a series we're calling Spiritual Misfits. We've understood in chapters 2, 3, and now beginning into chapter 4 that God has this unexpected plan to change the world. And it's that he's redeeming all these people together that really don't fit together, right? They really don't go together except 
that they now have a unity in Christ. Christ has brought us together. Nothing else would bring us together like Christ has brought us together. But now in Christ, we're one family. And, and Paul begin in, begins in chapter 4 to write to us about the unity that should exist inside of this family. So let's look at it. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. What's the first word? Say it out loud. What have I taught you? Whenever you see the word therefore, you need to look and see what? What is therefore, right? Why? Because the word therefore is a significant word in the Greek language. It's a word of transition. The word therefore comes from a Greek word that literally means based on what I've just said. Now I want to draw this conclusion. The word therefore in chapter 4, first word is important because it is a transition point in the letter. Up until this point, Paul has been laying down biblical doctrinal truth about who we are. For three chapters, Paul has been filling us with theology about who we are in Christ and who we are in the family to Christ of Christ and how we've been brought together and how we're no longer separated, but we're one family. Now, Paul says, therefore, based on all that, now, chapters 4, 5, and 6, he's about to get in our business. Because what he's about to say is, if all that is true about you, then it ought to affect the way you live in community. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you. Now, it's interesting. Paul could have said, I command you. He was an apostle. As an apostle, he could walk into any church anywhere and speak with apostolic authority. The scriptures had not been uh, clarified. We didn't have all the scriptures written at this point. So the apostolic word carried that weight of authority. Paul could have said as an apostle, I command you. But he didn't say, I command you. Paul is not speaking here from his position of authority as an apostle. He's speaking from the passion of his heart as a co-laborer, a co-follower in Christ, as a member of the family who's living on mission. He's saying, I'm begging you on behalf of the mission of God in the world. What's he imploring us to do? Look what he says. I'm imploring you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now, here's another thing we need to point out in this. Twice, Paul here says, you... Now, you may think when you see that, he's talking about you. And I understand your confusion because he said, you. <laughs> I grew up in Alabama, and I understand that because of that, sometimes my English language can be difficult for you to understand. Uh, and in and, and Alabama, and really it's just true throughout the southeast United States, we use some words that just aren't normal vocabulary, right? They don't make sense. For example, if I say today I'm going to go to Mom and Nims, a lot of you have no idea where I'm headed. Where's he going, Mom and Nims? What is Mom and Nims? It's Mom and them, which means family. I'm going to mama's house today to be with a family. Where are you going? Going to mama Nims. There are other words we use you don't understand, like the word fixing, right? Man, we can fixing in the English language in the South is like duct tape. You can do a thousand things with it. 
I'm fixing to eat. I'm fixing to go there. I'm fixing to do this. You can use it a thousand different ways. But there's one thing we do in the South that brings absolute clarity to this issue. You see, in the South, if we're going to talk to you, like if I'm going to talk to you, I'd say you. But if I'm going to talk to you, I'm not going to say you, right? No, because that's confusing. If I says you, am I talking to you? Am I talking to you? In the, in the proper English language, you singular and you plural is simply you. And you got to figure out. Is he talking to me? Is he talking to us? Where I'm from, we fix that. If I'm talking to you, I'm going to say you. If I'm talking to you, I'm going to say y'all, right? Why? Because I'm speaking. Here's what you need to know about what Paul's writing here. A lot of people read Ephesians 1, 4, 1. I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of which you've been called. And they hear it talking about me, 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 me. No, 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 no. Every time he uses the word you, it's really y'all. <laughs> Meaning this, Paul has been writing this doctrinal theological truth about who we collectively are in Christ. And now he's saying, here's the way y'all ought to be living this out together. I implore y'all to walk in a matter, matter, manner worthy of which you all, y'all, have been called. And you see it in verse 3, in verse 2, because then he begins to describe, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Think about it. You can't live any of those things out by yourself. You get in a room by yourself, say, well, I'm just being patient. <laughs> well, that's easy, right? I'm the most humble person I know in here all by myself. <laughs> These words demand community. Verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We're not going to look at these this morning. We're going to look at them next week. But listen to what he says. There's one body, one spirit. Just you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul's writing to us about being a church united. I want to say two things about it this morning. Number one, we are to walk together in unity. As the body of Christ... We're to walk together in unity. Paul uses this phrase, says, I'm begging you to walk worthy. What does it mean to walk worthy? Paul is teaching us that our reconciliation that has happened with the Father, which he's been writing to us about, now has implication in the way we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. This word walk doesn't mean just to walk around. It's a word that's used figuratively to mean and to describe the way you live your life. Paul is writing here about how we live, how we do relationships, how we act in community. Well, how are we to walk? He says we're to walk worthy. Worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Now, the word worthy is an interesting word. It comes from a Greek word that we get the word uh, balancing the scales from. It's where that expression comes from. Let me show you a picture. In Jesus' day, it was very common. If you go to the market, you would see scales set up like this. And when there was a transaction taking place, they wanted to make sure that what you were getting was equal to what you were giving, so they would weigh it. And if you were bartering, if you were exchanging one thing for another thing, they would put one thing on one side, another thing on the other to make sure that it was equal weight, that, it was, that what you were getting was worth what you were giving. 
It's worth. We use that phrase today. We'd say something like a worthy opponent if you're in sports. What's a worthy opponent? Someone who's equal to, they're equal in skill, they're equal in their desire to win, right? It's a worthy opponent. We'd say somebody's worthy of their wages. What does that mean? The way that they're working today is equal to the wage that they're being paid. It's what we believe in. Somebody is worthy of the wage that they're being paid. Paul here says that the way we live our lives... The way specifically we relate to one another in community should be placed on one side. And on the other side is the calling with which we have been called. John MacArthur said it this way. The believer who walks in a manner worthy of the calling with which he has been called is one whose daily living corresponds to his high position as a child of God and fellow heir with Jesus Christ. Get this. His practical living matches his spiritual position. Who I am in Christ for three chapters is now to be reflected as Christ in me lives through me in the way that I live and interact with others. That's what Paul's saying here. Well, What's the calling with which we've been called? What is our spiritual position? Where you been for the last six or eight months? It's what we've been dealing with in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. Paul has been laying down for us this truth about who we are. Let me just give you a quick overview of where we've come from. Here are some of the things Paul has said are true about us in Christ. Number one, we are chosen. Here's what that means. God in eternity past set his heart on me. Who I am in Christ today has nothing to do with what I've done and everything to do with what God did. It's all because of him. He chose us. Number two, we're adopted. We're adopted. That means that in Christ, you and I have become a part of a family to which we did not originally belong, the family of God. And he brought us into this family, not so we could do something for him, but so that we could simply be with him and he might do something in and through us. Not only are we chosen and adopted, we are loved. The scripture teaches us in Ephesians that we are so loved, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is found in Christ Jesus. Meaning this, there's not anything you can do today to change the way that God loves you. Number four, we are accepted. Here's what that means. God is pleased with you today because he's pleased with Christ and you and I are in him. There's nothing you have to do today to earn the acceptance of God. We are, Paul says, favored. It means you are always in a position of gracious favor. You don't have to earn your way into God's good standing. Number five, we are redeemed, meaning that you've already been purchased from the slave block of sin through the precious blood of Jesus and now we've been set free from the power of sin in our lives not only are we redeemed we're forgiven the word forgiven means that all the guilt of your sin and my sin past present and future it means every sin we've ever committed every sin we're going to commit today and yes every sin we're ever going to commit in the future has already been dealt with in Christ the guilt of that has been removed through the death burial and resurrection of Jesus not only are we forgiven, Paul said in the first three chapters that we are now heirs with Christ. Here's what that means. Everything that belongs to him, guess what? It now belongs to me and it belongs to you. Not only that, we're sealed. The word 
sealed is a word that means everything that I've already said is secure for all eternity. Chapter 2, Paul taught about us being saved by the amazing grace and unmerited favor of God. We've been made alive in Christ. And then Paul said we've been seated, meaning this. All this is so true about us. It's so much done. It's as if we're already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And that's just a thumbnail sketch of what Paul's already said about who you are in Christ. Listen, this is not who you hope to be. This is not what I'm coming to church to try to make myself become. Now, here's what Paul says. This is positional truth, meaning this. This is who you already are in Christ. How did I get that? By grace through faith. That's what Paul's been telling us. Seems too good to be true. Listen, it is too good to be true, but it's true. He's given us this. How did we get in on this? Through the gospel. We'd sinned against God. We were separated from God. But God loved us so much that he gave his only son, Jesus, to come into the world and take all our sin on himself, to die on a cross for our sin, but he didn't stay dead. He was raised from the dead. Why? As a testimony, God had accepted his sacrifice for our sin. Now we put our faith in Jesus, and by grace, guess what? All this becomes who we are in Christ. Here's the point. Who I am in Christ should be demonstrated in how I live for Christ. What Paul is showing us here as as who we are in Christ becomes Christ in us, it begins to be evident in the way that we live our lives. Meaning this, our being right with God this way should radically change the way we now relate to each other. Well, what does it look like to walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called? Well, Paul doesn't give us an exhaustive list, but he does give us some examples in verse 2. Look what it says. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. What are those? Those are characteristics of what it looks like when who Christ is and who I am in Christ is now being fleshed out in my life in relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me just give you a quick synopsis of these things. Number one, humility. We should walk with a walk of humility. What does that mean? It means putting the needs of others ahead of yourself. You see, when who I am in Christ becomes Christ in me, and I begin to live that out in community, guess what? Church isn't just about me getting my needs met. Church is about God using me to meet the needs of others. Well, why are you going to church? Well, I go to church, man. I need my pick-me-up. I need to get this. I need to get that. I need encouragement. Listen, has it ever dawned on you that God brought you into this fellowship not just to meet your needs, but so through you he could meet the needs of others? What if we all showed up on Sunday, not with our hands out, but with our eyes open, looking for needs that we could step in and meet? What is that? It's a walk of humility. It's who Jesus is. It's the defining mark of his life in the Gospels. That's why Jesus said, I didn't come to serve, but to what? I didn't come to be served, but I came to what? You knew I said it wrong, right? (laughs) You listen, I like it. I didn't come to be served. He said, I came to what? What does it look like in us? Humility. Not just being served, but serving others. The second thing he says is gentleness. 
Gentleness. Gentleness is not weakness. Gentleness is strength under control. Gentleness is the word in the Greek language that was used to describe a horse that had been broken. A horse that had all that strength, all that power, and yet now a small little person by holding the reins had that horse under control. Strength under control. That's gentleness. Jesus says, as we walk worthy, we'll walk in gentleness, meaning this. I'm allowing the Holy Spirit to control me, my actions, my reactions, my words for the good of others. In community, gentleness matters because your example may be the very encouragement someone else needs. Third word, patience. With patience. It's an interesting word because it's not the word for patience in circumstances. We can demonstrate like Job in the Old Testament, the patience of Job in the midst of trying and troubling and difficult circumstances. That's not this word. This is the word for patience with people. Specifically about our relationships. And here's what it means in community. Relating to others based on their position in the family and not their performance in the family. It means you don't relate to your brother and sister in Christ based on the way they've treated you. You relate to your brother and sister in Christ on the basis that they're your brother and sister in Christ and have been redeemed through the shed blood of Jesus and brought into the family of God. And I choose to demonstrate, here's what patience is, relational grace in action. That's patience. You see, patience matters in community because your area of strength may be someone else's area of struggle. No one else is, no, none of us in community have arrived yet. We're not perfect. And where we get impatient with people is when we see a weakness in them that is a strength in us and we wonder why they hadn't gotten where we are in that area yet. But here's what you need to recognize. They're going to be strong in something you're weak in and have to demonstrate patience and grace towards you. Fourth is enduring love. He says, with showing tolerance for one another in love. It's this idea of choosing to love others for their own benefit and not mine. It's continuing to love people even when they've done things towards me that are unlovable. One writer said it this way. It's, it's being willing to take abuse from others while continuing to love them. The word for love here is the Greek word agape. It's the God kind of love for us that he demonstrates. Agape love. Humility, gentleness, patience are really all rooted In this idea of agape love. When we choose to love, we can demonstrate humility and gentleness and patience. And I I know what you, you, you may be thinking as we think about this, that this is impossible. Especially when you listen to what William Barclay says about it. William Barclay is a Greek scholar, don't always agree with his theology. But listen to what he says here about this Greek word agape. If we regard a person with agape, it means that nothing that that person can or will ever do will make us seek anything but his or her highest good. That'll change the relationships inside the fellowship. Amen. Though he injure us and hurt us and insult us, 
we will never feel anything but kindness towards him. That quite clearly means that this Christian agape love is not an emotional thing. It is the ability to retain this unconquerable goodwill to the unlovely and the unlovable and toward those who do not love us. As someone has put it, agape is the power to love even when the people whom we do not like. Now, here's what we're thinking. I know we hear humility, gentleness, patience, love. And here's, I know, I know, I know, I know. Pastor, that is a high utopia type ideal. But here in the real world, that's not possible. Can I let you in on a secret? You're right. It's not possible. In my own strength. But that's why Paul spent three chapters telling us who we now are in Christ. You see, he's called us to love with this kind of love. We got some experience with that. Let me tell you how I know. Because he loved us like that. You see, he loved us when we didn't love him. He loved us when we were unlovable. How many times have we walked across the love of God to do what we wanted to do, and yet God continues to love us anyway? How many times have we acted like somehow God exists just to meet our needs, and yet in humility, he has met our needs anyway? How many times have we been impatient and frustrated with God, and yet God has demonstrated grace and patience and love and gentleness towards us over and and over and here's what Paul is saying who we now are in Christ is that Christ now lives in us and we are the, the, the family of God he now dwells inside of us as Christians and this same Jesus that has loved us and been patient with us and been gentle towards us now longs to live that out through us in our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ yes it's impossible in our own strength but when who we are in Christ begins to be Christ in us, then it becomes possible to see this kind of radical unity. And here's what Jesus said, man, when the world sees that, they know that's a work of God. Because let's just be honest, in our own flesh, we're not going there. I'm going to hold on to that, right? In my flesh, I'm going to hold on to it. I'm not letting it go. You did something to me. I, I got it in my back pocket when I need it. Aren't you glad Jesus doesn't relate to us like that? So we're to walk together in unity. Here's the second thing. We're done. We're to work together for unity. Verse 3. Being diligent. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Note this, he didn't tell us to create the unity. You know why? Because we didn't create this. He did. The unity that exists in the family of God exists because the Holy Spirit of God is created. That's why it's called the unity of the Spirit. What we have is a spiritual unity. 
that's rooted in our relationship with Jesus. The Holy Spirit of God has united us together. We cannot create this kind of unity, but here's what Paul wants to understand. We didn't create it, but we can sure enough kill it. We didn't create this unity, but listen, I've watched, I've watched it happen. I've watched brothers and sisters in Christ kill the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So Paul says, we're to be diligent. It means to make every effort. It means to work yourself to exhaustion. We're to be diligent to preserve, not to create, but to preserve. The word preserve means to watch over, to care for. And it's linked to what Paul said in verse 1 when he said, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. As a prisoner, somebody literally at this point, Paul was in prison in Rome, and they they had him chained to a guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The guard was constantly watching over him. Paul says, just like I'm a prisoner and they're constantly watching over me, I'm begging you, do everything you can 24 hours a day, seven days a week to watch over and care for and fight for the unity that exists in the family of God because the enemy's trying to tear it down and we got to fight what does it look like when we're diligent to preserve the unity that Christ has given us well I'm gonna close with two questions to help us reflect now this is not an exhaustive list of how we preserve unity but this is a starting place and it's kind of two sides of the same coin number one here's first question am I always ready to forgive when wronged by someone if we're going to do everything we can to fight for unity in the fellowship here's what you need to know you're going to get wronged you can't get this many people together and somebody not get wronged it's going to happen listen I only got a few people live in my house it happens at my house You get this many together, we're going to wrong one another. We're going to hurt each other. We're going to say something, do something. And here's what the enemy wants you to do. Wrap your heart around that. Hang on to it. Tell a few other people. Build your case. You know how we do it. It's gossip, but we we, we call it prayer requests, right? (laughs) I need you to pray. You're not going to believe what they did. (laughs) Here's the question. Am I always ready to forgive? 24-7, round the clock. Paul in another book of the Bible is writing this similar thought. In Colossians, look what he said. Paul said, So as those who've been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. See, he's saying the same thing he said here in Ephesians. Bearing with one another and, look at this, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anybody. Now, if it's not clear enough yet, the next phrase, just as the Lord forgave you. (laughs) Well, they hadn't asked me yet. (laughs) Aren't you glad Jesus didn't wait for us to ask? 
that he went to the cross and he purchased our redemption before we even knew we needed it. I'm not saying there aren't steps that need to be taken when somebody wrongs you. Listen, there are, but here's what I am telling you. By not going ahead and forgiving them, you're not hurting them. You're just hurting you. You need to get to the place in your heart where right now, whether they ever ask you or not, Lord, I need you to help me do this. But God, I forgive them. So when they do come, if they come, you can throw your arms around them and say, listen, you need to know I forgave you a long time ago. This idea of forgiving each other right here, it's in the present tense. It means it's, it's just continuous. Meaning we're looking to forgive before we even know they need it. Say, that's not possible. You're right. Except by Christ in us. Here's the second question. It's similar, but it's the other side of the coin. Am I always seeking to reconcile when I've wronged someone? So if you're a brother or sister in Christ, if there's somebody that's wronged you, you need to be ready to forgive. But here's the other side of that. If you've wronged somebody, you need to be quick to go and make that right. Don't wait. How quick should I be? Well, listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, what does that mean? If you're at church, you're ready to worship, and you remember... Your brother's got something against you. You did something. You know it. When church is over, no, that's not what he said, right? Leave your offering. Go. First be reconciled to your brother. Here's what Jesus said. Listen, you can't even be right to worship God if you hadn't made it right with your brother or sister in Christ. You're just going through the motions here. First be reconciled to your brother. Then come bring your offering. Then come worship. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. I'll close with this quote. If you are in a state of constant, or excuse me, conscious enmity against a brother, meaning you know it, there's something in your heart, you know it. Even as I'm talking, there's some of you that, that the Holy Spirit has surfaced. Somebody's wronged you or you've wronged somebody. There's conscious enmity. That's what he said. If you're not speaking to one another person or if you're harboring these unkind thoughts and are a hindrance and an obstacle to that other, God's word assures you that there is no value in your attempted act of worship. It will avail you nothing. The Lord will not hear you. According to our Lord, the matter is so vital that you must, as it were, even keep God waiting. Go and put it right first. He says, then you, he says, you cannot be right with God until you're first right with man. So let's bow our heads. Here's how we're going to close this morning. I want you to just bow your head there before the Lord and I want you to ask God right now. Simple question, Lord. Is there anyone who's wronged me that I need to forgive? Lord, is there anybody that's wronged me that I'm holding on to it? I hadn't let go of it. I need to forgive them. Let him speak. 
Don't have an argument with God in your soul about why you're right. Secondly, ask him this. Lord, is there anyone that I've wronged in word or action that I need to go to and ask their forgiveness? Hey, maybe there's somebody in this service. You know what would be awesome? What if right now, God's laying you on their heart and them on your heart. And God wants to see this morning the miracle of reconciliation take place. Just a moment, we're going to stand. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a song of worship. If you're here today and you want to pray with one of our pastors, we're here along the front during this time of worship. If you got something in your job, your health, your family, a relationship, your marriage, your finances, and you just need to pray with a pastor while we're worshiping, you can come. We'd be honored to pray for you and with you. But Christians, I'm going to challenge you. Maybe there's somebody you need to go to during this time of worship. Seek out a brother or sister and make something right. Or maybe you know about a relationship between two people in our fellowship that's not right. And you want to just come and get in one of these altars and just beg God on behalf of the mission and the unity of the fellowship. Ask God to bring reconciliation in that relationship. Or maybe there's another burden on your heart about something in the fellowship or something in your life. You just want to come get in one of these altars and just cry out to God. Listen, these altars are open. We need to be a praying church that's a united church. And then finally, if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with God, you don't know what it means to be forgiven and to know God personally. Listen, we we would love today to sit down with you and talk to you about how you can have a relationship with God. When While we're singing, while some are coming to pray and others are being prayed with, if you don't know Jesus today, if you don't know what it means to know God, if you'll just come to one of our pastors, here's all you need to say. Just say, I need Jesus. That's it. If you forget that, don't worry about it. Just stand here. We'll know why you've come. Just come today. Say, I need God. And we'll have somebody show you how you can leave here today with a relationship with God. Lord, in this moment, would you have your way? Holy Spirit of God, move among us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.